Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. We have Jorge Contreras with me here today, and Jorge is an Airbnb expert, and I'm going to call him that because he has retired by the age of 29 and became a millionaire by 30, seven figures with his Airbnb business, and he's here to share with us today how he did that. But Jorge, I really appreciate your time here today. Thank you, Jack, for the opportunity to connect here with your audience. I really appreciate it. So getting into real estate investing was probably a very thoughtful progress, but I'm always interested in understanding how you found your way into this particular niche. Absolutely. Yeah, sure. So the way I got into this niche specifically is in my first business, I own a dance company when I was, I started it when I was 20. And at about, in about 2016, I had a student of mine who was in my choreography company who owned two duplexes out in Fresno, California. And she told me one evening that she was making three and a half times with Airbnb compared to what she was generating from her long-term tenants. And I was like, man, that sounds incredible. Let me find out for myself. And so I had four leases that were ending at the beginning of January in 2017. So I did some upgrades, furnished the properties. And in March of 2017, I launched my first four units. And sure enough, these properties went from making $1,500 in gross rents to $3,500 in gross rents each. And I never looked back. It was, I, it was just a life-changing experience from six k to fourteen k, basically overnight with the same properties. So that's how that began. Sure. You know, a lot of people that are looking into getting into Airbnb for the first time, could you give them a little direction of what, where they should possibly consider starting? Absolutely. I always tell people, Jack, that they should make it their goal to own as much real estate as possible because you and I know that's where you create long-term wealth. And if they're able to do that and find some creative financing strategies to acquire multiple properties in a short amount of time, that would be the way to go. For me, a lot of my students and just social media followers, they're not in the position to go and buy two, three, four Airbnbs in order to replace your nine to five, since that is most of their goal. And so I teach them a strategy called Airbnb arbitrage, where they can rent properties from owners, get permission in writing, and then launch those properties on platforms like Airbnb. And again, the difference of what they pay in rent and what they generate is what they, is what they make. And there's really three important things that they need to look at. Number one, they should call the city to make sure they can get a permit and only move forward on properties where you can get a permit. Number two, look into AirDNA, which is our comp data software. We can go in there, plug in an address of a property that you want to rent or buy, and it'll give you the projected revenue based on similar properties in the area. And then finally, make sure you get writing permission in writing from the owner. Otherwise, you, you can get evicted because you'll be in violation of the lease that they want. That's really good advice, especially the arbitrage. And I've run into a couple of people that have been able to pull that off, and it really seems to work well. And it's a great way to get into this with as little out of pocket as possible. I just wanted to remind you, you mentioned your social media. Everybody head over to at the Jorge Contreras, and I'm going to make sure to have that direct link in the show notes to find your Instagram account, because I understand there's a lot of great information there. 
But, so getting that in writing from the existing owner, is that something that you can help somebody with? Or is there anything in particular that you need to make sure is in that that yeah. written agreement? Or yeah, is it pretty informal? Yeah, it's pretty straightforward, right? You take a standard lease, which all lease agreements say no subleasing. So we're just going to take that part out. And then it's going to say like your name. So in my case, Jorge Contreras has permission to use this property as a short-term rental and to change the locks. And that's it. Everything else is just a standard. We do 12 months. We pay the first month deposit. We tell the landlords that we're going to set up the property on auto pay to make sure they get paid days early. And we'll make sure we maintain a great relationship with the neighbors. We have, we always want to ensure the owners that we have a strict, no party, no event policy. Like we really, we truly only work with professionals that are coming to the area or people that are looking to vacation, but we don't allow music or additional guests. We really want to protect the home and the neighborhood so that we have the ability to renew the lease for many years to come. We mentioned early when we started hitting record that you essentially retired from the daily grind. When you're dealing with Airbnb or any real estate, I find sometimes we substitute one business or, right. or hustle to the next. What have you done to make things a little easy on you or maybe even apply some automation to this whole thing? That's a great question. Over the years, I've invested a lot of money into coaches and mentors. And I remember one day going to, a, it was a five-day training with Tony Robbins Business Mastery. And he kept saying over the five days, he kept saying, you don't build the business, you build the people and the people build the business. And he kept saying, work on the business, not in the business. And so now that I've implemented that successfully now, like I'm still trading time for money, just like any other business owner. But now when I'm trading my hours for dollars, it's a much, much higher hourly because I only focus on those 5% of activities that generate 95% of the results. And when it comes to Airbnb, it is a operation intensive business, right? There's four to eight cleanings a month. They're going to have maintenance like every other checkout. Someone needs to do communications before, during, and after each and every guest. So it is a lot of work. That said, you know, with the right systems and processes and mindset, you can make any business like semi-passive, maybe not completely passive, but you can automate a lot of things to make it a, hands, a, a somewhat hands-off experience. And so that's what we've done. We built in a team. We always have a cleaner, a maintenance person, and a communications coordinator for each property. And then on top of that, have a property manager that oversees each property with each of those teams. And this way, I communicate just with the manager directly. And it's just like a 25-minute weekly meeting for a portfolio of 18 properties, I'm spending less than an hour a week, again, because of the infrastructure. Could you elaborate a little bit on the tools that you use? I know communication is a big aspect to this. Absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So we like to use Slack for anyone that's not familiar. It's just a text communication platform. When you create an account, it's going to ask you for a workplace name. So it might be the REI Mastermind Network. And then let's say you got 10 properties each channel is one property. So you essentially got property one, property two, property three. And inside of each channel, you have everyone that, you know, who, whom that property pertains to. So you'll have the cleaner, the maintenance, the VA, and the property manager, and then yourself. And then if you have a business partner or spouse that's involved. And now when someone goes to channel two and says, hey, there's a leak in the property, everyone in that channel gets notified. The handyman can go and handle it between the check it, check out and check-in window, which is 10 to 3. They got a five-hour window to handle that. And that has streamlined the communication. 
a lot of people will frequently ask like guests, hey, can we check in early? Can we check out late? Can we drop off our luggage? And this way they communicate with the cleaner and they could say yes, no, or here's what to respond. And you just see everybody, you create a culture where everybody communicates with each other. And, and again, it just gives you that leverage so that you're not involved in these little decisions that are important, but they're very tedious. You've been able to build a, such a collaborative environment. Do you find that with everybody on these Slack channels that they're sharing preferred practices and people adopt new information pretty quickly? Yeah. You mean like between our teams? Yeah. I've just, we've just created that culture from the beginning. It's, hey, I would tell the, I remember when the cleaner, her name's Claudia from, she cleans like seven of our Airbnbs and she would call me and be like, hey, Jorge, there's a leak in the property. And I am not a handy guy. I'm just like, if I need to put a new doorknob in a property, like I'm going to pay someone to do it. Cause that's just, I don't want to drive over there. That's not my specialty. I want to focus on the, on my zone of genius. And I would say, okay, good. Go and call the handyman. Don't call me, call the handyman. And so I kept creating this culture of, Hey, if you need the handyman to do some work, call the handyman. Like just, you can put it in the slack so I can be in the know, but I, you don't have to call me directly. Just let him know. And I just kept doing that with all of my team members. They would say, hey, the guest is asking this question. I'm like, great. That's a great question to ask our cleaner since she's the one that cleans it. And she would know the proper answer. And now I've just streamlined the communication amongst all the properties and they all communicate with each other. And only when it's something major, which not very often do they like involve me. So you just used the term focus on my zone of genius. Is that an original thing or did you pick that up from one of your masterminds? I picked that up from one of my masterminds. Okay. Where did you, where did that originate from? The very first time I heard it was one of my mentors. His name is Scott Oldfor. He helped me when I was first starting my coaching company back in 2018. And he just kept talking about that. He said, yeah, you want to focus on your zone of genius. Don't edit your social media videos. Like you should hire somebody and just focus on what you're good at, which is strategy, being the visionary and coaching. I'm like, okay. And, and then again, when I would go to other trainings, they they would say the same thing. They're like, hey, if you're a visionary, stick to the visionary role and let the integrator do the integrator role. And I've just heard it multiple times over the years, explain in a different way. And it just makes sense. It's rather than, I do believe that we should work on certain weaknesses, or I like to call them opportunities, but more often than not, it's better to double down on your strengths and hire people that can implement those things that you're not so good at. It's just focus on what you're good at. You. Earlier, you also mentioned, you've mentioned mentorship a few times and masterminds a couple times. Is that one of the things that you you would point to, to get your mindset right on a couple of things? You talk about the zone of genius. And I think that there's a, typically a mindset hurdle that we typically have to go through to not only let things go and rely on other people in a certain way. As a business owner, you want to take on more than you probably should. But then there's also this mindset around how much money or how much your time is actually worth. You got to break through as well. Would you point to some of this mentorship and masterminds to help you with some of that? Yeah, you hit it on the nail. Somebody like me, for example, like I grew up in a household with two Mexican immigrant parents. Interesting story. When I was like seven years young, we used to sell drugs. When I was 10, we smuggled people across the border. My dad was like in and out of jail. He was an alcoholic. Then he passed away when I was 12. Then my mom abandoned me when I was 13, barely graduated high school, like dropped out of college. So I say all that to say that I had a lot of limiting beliefs about every, in every aspect, about relationships, about business, about trusting people. 
I just had a lot of challenges and I went through like the next 13, 14 years of my life, just not knowing how to collaborate, not trusting people, not knowing how to build relationships and wanting to do everything out of control and out of not trusting people. And what I learned when I started going through self-development trainings and mentorships and even like therapy is that the way that we live our lives, <clears throat> we are always doing things or taking actions in order to validate our beliefs to be true. So the two limiting beliefs that I always create a bottleneck in a, especially in a solopreneur, is if I want it done right, I have to do it myself. And if I do it myself, I will save money. And when you believe those two things, you don't want to hire, you don't want to delegate, you believe that it's hard to find good people, and therefore you become a slave to your business. And like you said earlier, right, a lot of people leave their nine to five to work for themselves from nine to nine. And I remember about five years ago, I was coaching this young lady and she's like, oh, I don't want to be an entrepreneur where hey, I saw the way my dad worked. He worked like a dog. He was never there. And because he was a business owner, we never got to see him. And, it, and again, that was, she created a belief because of how her father ran a business. And so for me, I've been able to go through these trainings and get another perspective. And I've been able to learn from millionaires and even one billionaire, that being Tony Robbins. And I've been able to see, just see other perspectives on how they run their businesses and I've been able to exchange those limiting beliefs for new beliefs that now allow me to work on things that matter the most. That was a long answer. <laughs> no, that, that was a great answer. And I'm going to go back a little bit further with everything that you've experienced over your life. Could you talk a little bit to the point where it's obvious that you see mentorship and masterminds and a few other things as much as a as an investment as you do a rental property yeah Is, even more was that a mindset shift too because you it seems like we always question we see stuff like that as an expense instead of an, as an investment i'll give you a great example in 2015 is when i paid for my very first mentorship and it was $35,000 I became a student at the Rich Dad Company. I went to a three-day training for $300, and then they had a $12, a $20, and a $35,000 package. And I paid for the $35,000 package. That one, in the, for, it came with a two-year group mentorship with a bunch of, they call them symposiums, like in-person weekenders. And as part of my mentorship, I had a one-on-one -on -one mentor that flew from Florida to California, where I live, and spent three consecutive days with me for eight hours a day. So we spent 24 hours together. And one of the first things I told her is that I had purchased my first piece of real estate in 2012. And now three years later, I'm sitting there in person with her at a coffee shop. And I told her name's Mary Jo Wilson. I said, Mary Jo, right now, in addition to my mortgage payment, I'm sending an extra 3000 to 5000 a month. So an extra 3000 to 5000 a month just to the principal. And I am on track to paying this house off in the first eight years. I'll do that by the time I'm 32. And I was like, just so proud of myself. And she's like, why would you do that? And I said, because I want to become financially free. And then she said, honey, that's not how you do it. I'm like, what do you mean? She said, yeah, you'll be mortgage payment free, but you'll still be stuck in the rat race for the rest of your life. And I was like, okay, what am I supposed to do? She said, look, if you want to become financially free, 
And if you want to become a millionaire, what you ought to do is do a refinance cash out. She did the numbers and she said, right now, she said, you can pull out $160,000 tax-free through a refinance cash out. And I want you to go and buy two houses. And I was like, whoa. And that's when the concept of good debt versus bad debt, like I had never, I had just read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad before that, sitting with her a few months Mm -hmm. prior. But when she said that, it, it just created this paradigm shift where that one lesson for me is the reason that my net worth exceeded a million within two years. So within two years after that meeting, my net worth went from like probably 400,000 to about a million. So for me, had I not done that mentorship, it wouldn't have cost me the 35,000. It would have cost me the 600,000 in net worth because there was a mindset shift. I never looked at money. I never looked at investments. I never looked at it like life. I saw everything through a different lens, right? Because I used to have that Dave Ramsey mentality. And now I adopted this rich dad mentality of leverage is the name of the game. And if you know how to invest and you're a sophisticated and smart investor, and if you know what you're doing, and if you have experience, then you want to use leverage. Don't buy things cash, use leverage, finance them, use the rest to acquire more cash flow producing assets that can pay for your liabilities. So for me, there's no way that I would be where I'm at, or I'd be able to help the thousands of people that I have if it wasn't for the mentors, because again, when I mentioned earlier, the way I grew up, I'm not supposed to be where I'm at today, but I'm, at, I'm where I'm at today because I'm standing on the shoulders of my mentors. Yeah, that's one of the taglines of this show. We can either put in the 10,000 hours and struggle through it ourselves, or we can learn from those who have already put in that in those hours. And you're a perfect example of that. And it's really striking as well that it sounds like once you got your mindset correct. Not only did you take this advice, but you were ready to implement and take those on and follow suit. I can't tell you how many times we run into people that will try to, whether it's just a few hundred dollars or tens of thousands, like you said, they will not take it to heart and actually take the steps needed or that were suggested or at least try it. Yeah, it's true. And look, like not everybody maybe sees the value in mentorship because I remember sitting at the very first weekend event after making that investment into this mentorship. And I'm sitting in the front like, man, nobody needs this more than I do. And there's this mom and daughter duo sitting next to me on the right. And they were on their phone the whole time, like not valuing what they just paid. I don't know, maybe they paid for a lesser mentor, but even if they paid the 12,000, They just weren't valuing what they were learning. They were on Facebook, like scrolling. And so, yeah, there's people that pay for mentorship and don't take action. It's just the law of averages. If you have a thousand freshmen in high school that start, by the time you get to seniors, the people who graduate, like it might only be like 60% or 70%. That's just, it's always going to exist. But for me, for someone like myself, who I'm an action taker, I believe in myself the mindset is there. I always extract something good from every mentorship that I'm a part of. Like I take that. It's like when I work out with my trainer, it's not his job to get me in shape. Like it's my job to get me in shape. Like I take that ownership and responsibility and I apply it into every aspect of my life. I'd like to get back into the Airbnb here a little bit, because I'm sure a lot of people are chopping at the bit to understand how you do a few things. But again, I want to remind everybody you can find 
Jorge on Instagram, and I'll make sure to have that link in the show notes, but it's the Jorge Contreras. And like I said, take a look and swipe, swipe in your podcasting app. I'll try to make that a clickable link. So one of the things that's interesting is, Jorge, you mentioned air DNA, I think it was Uh, outside of that. And it's, it seems to be a 50, 50. When I run into people that do Airbnb or they're going to try it for the first time, there's almost a mentality that if they build it, people will come. Instead <laughs> of uh, you're laughing, that must be some a ringing of truth there, huh? Yeah. Well, see, a year ago, I would say you could have launched an Airbnb almost anywhere, and it could have done pretty good. But right now that we are in a recession, those properties in tertiary markets are really struggling. I got a property right now that is completely in the red in Joshua Tree, California. Those in a second secondary markets might might be cash flowing, but very little. And the ones, the only ones that are doing extremely well today are those in primary markets. And that's why I was laughing because I'm like, maybe about a year ago, yes, if you build it, you know, they will come. But today you gotta be very specific about the types of properties and locations in which you launch for short-term rentals, because the rules of the game have changed. So it seems, and you could correct me, but it seems like there's two com- two types of businesses now that do Airbnb or short-term rentals. One focuses on putting short-term rentals near corporations and and businesses that are going to provide some sort of steady business-type travel, and then the other is more recreational. What do you typically focus on? So we do a combination of both. So I'll share my sort of what we, our business model. I typically go for single family homes that have a minimum of three beds, two baths, minimum 1,100 square feet. The more beds, the more baths, the more square footage, the better. They must have a pool and a game room. And, and then I'll typically buy above ground jacuzzi. And I want to I, I be able to create a staycation experience where they can have a great time in the home without needing to leave the home. That has become extremely popular since the pandemic. A lot of people that are just want to drive 30 minutes without having to buy flights and still be able to have a great experience in the home. The other part that is very lucrative is park getting short-term rentals near like the downtown where you have the, excuse me, where you have the convention center where there's year-round conferences, concerts, business events, weddings, and whatnot. So for me, I want to be able to get the property I just described as close as possible to downtown within one to three miles. And then I capture both. I get the nurses, the corporate bookings, the government bookings, the relocation companies, those who are having a vacation with their family. And I capture all audiences at my properties. And I do this in ideally in primary locations. On the flip side, we're talking about platforms now, Airbnb, one of them, where they're, it's flooded with a, a lot of options for people. If somebody's doing this for the first time, has there been any strategies or tricks when you're onboarding a new property to stand out and get some of those bookings that you might need? Yeah, it's the it's creating that staycation experience. So we're definitely playing a game of whoever has the most and best amenities wins. So if you have two properties near downtown and one of them, let's say it's an apartment complex that has a gym, maybe it's got a conference room, it's got all these great amenities. And you have another apartment that has none of those. Of course, the one with the best and most amenities is going to get more bookings, more eyeballs, and it's going to bring more revenue. And we also make some, do some additions inside. So if you have room, if it's a house 
will turn and there's parking in the driveway. We'll typically convert the like the one or two car garage into a game room. So if it's big enough, we'll put in like a pool table, a foosball table, a large Jenga, a large Connect Four, Monopoly, Uno, all these different games to be able to create again that great staycation experience. So we always want to want to implement that to separate us from everybody else. Not everybody does that. You'd be surprised. Also, a lot of people cut corners and take phone pictures with their phones. We always hire a real estate photographer that's going to bring that nice wide lens in order to, because that is how we do our, all of our marketing, right? It's through the pictures. I'm always amazed that people will spend a considerable amount of time and money on a place and then rely on their cheap cell phone to, yeah. to take remember, these photos. Remember I mentioned earlier that limiting belief of if I do it myself, I'll save money. There you go. That person is taking those pictures in order to validate that belief to be true. Another thing that people are going to typically struggle with is how do they price things? You want to make sure that calendar is full. Sure. Where, so, how do you, how have you figured out your pricing? So I have the 10, 20, 30 pricing models, pretty straightforward, whatever your rent or mortgage payment is. I typically like to go by fair market rent because if there's somebody out there that does put a large down payment and now their mortgage is really low, they should still price it based on fair market rent. So let's say the fair market rent on that property is 3000 a month. Then my goal is to charge 10% of that for a nightly rate. So if the rent or mortgage or the fair market rent is 3000 I'm going to charge 300 a night. And my goal is to break even at 10 nights, double my rent at 20 and triple at 30. And again, I'll give you a great example. If like I have multiple properties that I sublease or have a mortgage of 3000 and those are single family homes, the way I described, I'm hosting about 10 people in those properties because they got three or four or five bedrooms. So it sleeps 10 people very comfortably and 300 bucks a night is a steal because those 10 people at a local hotel are going to be paying maybe $1,200 a night after you add in all the taxes and fees that they pay at the hotel. So I'm able to provide a, frac a better experience at a fraction of the cost. So 10% of the rent is the nightly rate. You mentioned a couple of times regarding some accommodations that you apply, you provide, whether it's the jacuzzi, pool table, like a gaming room, that type of thing for that staycation situation. And this would be on top of those standard accommodations, whether it's just simply a bed and furniture and what have you. Is there any accommodations that you prov you've provided to as a trial balloon or you've adopted now because it surprised you? Well, the, the one that I would say really took us by surprise was the pool. And obviously that's not something that we're going to add in. It typically either comes with the property or it doesn't. But I remember probably like in January of 2019, I had a student that was buying a property and she said, hey, if it's the business model, the way you describe Jorge, but it has a pool, what do you think? And at the time, I actually thought that might be more of, a, of an expense. And then she started making like 9,000 in gross revenue and her mortgage payment was 3K and we were all mind blown. What is going on here? And the only thing that stood out was the pool. So then I went out there and tried it for myself. And sure enough, we saw that properties with pools. And again, this is in Southern California where we typically get great weather year round and some sun, mostly sun year round performed exceptionally well. And I, I still have one property today that does not have a pool. And that's the one that is struggling the most compared to the ones that do. So a pool pretty much makes or breaks your Airbnb in sunny areas. 
That's especially interesting because in my mind, and this would be a limiting belief again, with the maintenance and what, it's just another thing that can go wrong. You're trying to eliminate those things that can go wrong. Yeah, no, it's true. That's exactly how I thought until I saw otherwise. And now it must have a pool or we don't get the property. <laughs> You've spent a lot of time building out your team and trying to step away to allow your, yourself to work on the business instead of in the business. What are some of the strategies or pointers you could give people in order to make sure you have the right person in the right position and sourcing these individuals? Yeah. So from sourcing, I use social media, Yelp, Thumbtack. I will also use just platforms online to find people. The other thing I recommend is not to hire like large companies. Don't go and hire a large cleaning company because their, their fees are going to be much higher and they might send a different person each time. I much rather, I always tell my students to hire somebody in-house that you can pay per cleaning and they can still clean other people's Airbnbs or other people's properties, but you want to work with a person directly that's going to be at your property each and every time to have consistency and, and it's going to keep your costs lower. And then as far as making sure they're the right person, I always hire people like on a 45-day probation period. And within those 45 days, at any given time, they could say, you know what, this is not a good fit. And I can also say, you know what, this is not a good fit. And then after the 45 days, it becomes like official. So that gives us some time to date each other and see if it's a good fit. And when it comes to finding good people, I believe, first of all, my belief is that there is great people out there and I'm going to keep hiring people until I find the ones that are going to stick. And, I, and I've gone through a few that didn't work out, but for the most part, mo most part, most of them have worked out exceptionally well probably like 90% of the time. And many of them have been with me for five years now, six years now since the beginning. And yeah, the mindset behind that is you, you got to realize as a business owner that not all things are created equal. And me cleaning the Airbnbs or doing maintenance or communication, they keep the money, but they don't make the money. So I want to hire out the things that keep the money. And I want to focus on the things that make more new money. And that is acquisitions, finding new properties, getting new deals. So while my team is working in the business, I can go out and find new deals and keep growing and expand. Yeah. Just remind one, everybody one more time, the Jorge Contreras on Instagram. I'll make sure to have that link in the show notes. But this was a great conversation. I appreciate you giving us a primer, especially around Airbnb and short-term rentals. But Jorge, I warned you, I do have a few rapid fire questions to learn a little bit more about you and how you've done a few things. Sure. First of all, here's your chance to bust a real estate or real estate investing or business myth. What would you like to bust here today? A business myth. Yeah. <laughs> I give an example of we've always watched those late night programming that it promises real estate investing is a get rich quick scheme. Uh-huh. So do you have a myth that you'd like to bust here today? Do I have a myth that I would like to bust here today about real estate investing or business ownership? As far as like any myth, let's see, myth that I would like to bust. Where can I start? Can you give me an example? I'm, maybe I'm not understanding exactly the question. A, a great example is that I, a lot of people, I go back to the real estate investing is, oh, here's a very popular one that you can get into real estate investing with no money. Okay. I see what you're saying. Got it. Which is true. 
partially, not really, because you're you need somebody's money. <laughs> you need some, some right? money you, somewhere. You need somebody's yeah. money. It doesn't have to be your money, but you need somebody's money. <sighs> and if yeah. you don't have one right off the bat, we can edit yeah, this let's, piece let's out and I it. can <laughs> sure. So what book would you recommend? Everybody checking out, or what are you reading right now? The book that I would recommend is The One Thing by Gary Keller. And my favorite thing from that book, he says, what is the one thing that if you did that correctly, it would make everything else easier or unnecessary? Too many people start too many streams of income at the same time thinking that is the way when that only spreads yourself, right? In the book, it also says, if you try to catch two rabbits at once, you will catch neither. So I'm, I'm a big believer in start with one strategy go all in on that one strategy, do multiple deals, and only then decide if it makes sense to go out and do the next deal with a different strategy. Sure. What is the biggest real estate investing mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? The biggest mistake I made was buying this property in a tertiary market. And what I learned from it is that during the recession, properties in tertiary and secondary markets don't hold their value as, as strong and don't perform as well during a recession like right now. So like this property, again, out of 18 properties, I have one that is losing money, 17 that are cash flow positive. But that one that is losing money is losing like 5000 a month because it's a big property. Interest rate was high and it was supposed to be making like 12K in gross revenue. And it's not because during that escrow period, we start, started to enter the recession. And so that that's my biggest lesson is don't invest in tertiary markets. Try to stick to primary markets. Sure. Now we're going to get into a time machine and you get to go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice. What would that be? Man, I would say find a mentor as fast as possible in whatever it is. I want to be successful. Find someone who has the results that I want and give them my credit card and just learn as fast as possible so I can Go bigger, better, faster, stronger, because success loves speed. And now you have 60 seconds. You're going to give everybody a single tip or trick that they can implement into their business today. What would it be? Today, I would say make a list of all the activities that you currently do yourself as an operator and start assigning those activities a dollar value and look at what your goal is to generate over the next 12 months. So if your goal is to generate, say, 300000 that means that your hour is worth 150, just divided by two, and that is the hourly rate. Anything that is uh, valued at less than $150 an hour, you should delegate to somebody else and only focus on those activities that are worth the hour relative to the income that you want to generate. And this way, this is the only way that you can start to grow and scale is to build a team, believe that there's good people out there, and then go from there. Jorge, this was awesome. I really appreciate your time. But is there a question or concept you wish we would have covered here today? I think we covered it all. I would just say go out there and take massive, imperfect action. And it's not always about the money you make, but about who you become in the process. Have you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing? If so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.